previously on Storyological. <laughs> no one ever says the third epoch of mankind. No, it's the third age of mankind. Or, you know, the third age of Middle Earth, whatever. And Babylon, Babylon 5, of course, is set in the third age of You're mankind. You're getting the reference in the early today. Should we put in anything about... Hello, hello, Strange Horizons. I think we should definitely put in this part where we debate whether or not <laughs> we should say anything. No, I couldn't read Lord of the Rings because it was way too scary. Man, those wraiths. I read, I read up until the point where the hobbits are hiding in the roots of that tree and the wraith is looking for them and breathing and you just hear the clattering of the hooves above their heads. And I was like, I don't, I don't think this is for me anymore. <laughs> no, it didn't scare me. Stop it. You stop your phone. They're going to eat it. The hobbits go to screen. Oh, shiny. I want the shiny. You're such a disturbing boy. This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerood. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick this week is Created He Then by Alice Eleanor Jones, which was originally in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in June 1955. But I found it in the collection or anthology Daughters of Earth, Feminist Science Fiction in the 20th Century, edited by Justine Labolestier. Published 2006. They don't need to know that, do they? What else? Well, I mean, if we were citing this, I mean, if this was an academic article. But. Yeah. Our readers today can go and look at it on Strange Horizons. That's true. This week, unlike other weeks, we're not going to be sending you off all over the internet and to a library to find the stories. We're going to send you to strangehorizons.com slash whatever the current episode, the current issue is. We're doing a bit of a collaboration with them this week and we're cross-pollinating. So the stories we've picked are up at Strange Horizons and this podcast, which you're listening to right now, is in their feed. Maybe you're listening to it in that feed right now, in which case, hello, how are you? Hope you're well. Or maybe, uh, you know, and if you're not, you're listening to it in our feed and after this, possibly before this, you can go and listen to them. <laughs> you can go and listen to an ALA reading these stories. If at all possible, do time travel. That is what I've taken from what Emma said. Yeah. Yeah. Just do it. Yeah. So this story is a story of a couple who live together with two of their young sons. It's a, it's a love story. I mean, that is a completely inaccurate description of it. <laughs> if, there, if there is something that is the opposite of a love story, which maybe is more like a kind of a seething pit of detest ability story than than that is the state of their relationship Uh, do you remember what the prologue of 500 days of summer said no it said this is a story about love but it's not a love story this couple live with their two young sons in a post-nuclear fallout usa henry is constantly angry with anne and he's abusive and mercurial and she is constantly trying and failing to please him and initially she's a saint i mean (laughs) possibly a saint possibly just really misguided because as you're reading this and as you're experiencing how unpleasant their life is you kind of i immediately to my my mind in 2017 i was like why why is she there what is she doing what's keeping her there what what hold does he have over her right slash why does anyone remain in a life that is not what they want yes yeah obviously we can get into that. But specifically in okay. this in this story, right. the reason becomes clear that 
they're living in this kind of post-nuclear war or nuclear fallout kind of world. And this couple are special because the children that they have are actually healthy. And this is kind of the scene where you understand that this is the situation is where Anne takes her kids out for a, a, a walk around the neighborhood in the pushchair. And the women come out <laughs> in the stroller. I'm sorry, was that the right? Well, I was debating whether or not to footnote it for our... <laughs> pushchair, stroller, pram? Do you say pram? Um, no. Uh, baby carriage, maybe, if you were like the Upper East Side. Your name was Gatsby. But as she's going for this walk with the yeah. pram and the kids... It says the women were beginning to come, as they always came, timidly out of the drab houses to look at the children, and Anne walked straighter and tried not to smile. And it's this scene where she bargains time with her children, with the women in the neighborhood, for whatever little pieces of food and favors that they can do for her. And it's icky and horrible the way that her kids are this transactional thing, and particularly... And her discomfort with the whole kind of transaction is what makes this story so delicious to to read, to understand that she's stuck in this marriage because they can have healthy children and she wants healthy children. But now she's got these healthy children. What she does with them is is kind of bargain with them, with the other Mm. women in the neighborhood to get favors for her husband who then doesn't really appreciate them and actually makes her life worse. It's a whole... And then, of course, when her children get older, they get taken by the state to I mean, the center. That is the literal um, cherry on the top of yeah. her existence. <laughs> the literal cherry, yes. Yeah. yeah. So there are so many places to begin with this story. I thought, let's start with semicolons. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, right, you, you've talked about Anne being trapped in a life then the fallout of whatever horrible thing has happened mm-hmm. in this aftermath her life is dominated by the state the people that, that take her children the people that have set up this economy of childbirth and it's dominated by her husband who you know he does the thing that husbands are supposed to do he has a job and he goes out she does the thing that she's supposed to do she has the kids there's a lot of domination of identity and thought and it is surprising the number of semicolons that are in <laughs> the first paragraph, which is Anne Crothers looked at the clock and frowned and turned the fire lower under the bacon. She had already poured his coffee, semicolon. He liked it cool to a certain degree, semicolon. But if he did not get up soon, it would be too cool and the bacon too crisp, and he would be angry and sulk the rest of the day. She had better call him. Now, to be fair, there's only two semicolons, but one semicolon is surprising. Two is particularly surprising. And what I loved about it is, there's another one in the second paragraph, but what I loved about it is, is that it, it reinforces the idea that every thought she has is coupled with another completely independent thought. There's almost no room in her mind for her own thought. No thought stands alone. It's immediately, well, what does he want? Yeah, yeah. The, the children... Kind of- it's that it's that manifestation of the trapness. Exactly. And so like the children too, the children don't entirely belong to her. As soon as she has a child, it is coupled with the thought, it will be taken from me. Mm. And that's, that's reflected in the grammar. It's reflected in the structure of the story. And I, well, I just love it. I just love what you can do with a damn semicolon if you want to. One of the books I was reading when I found this story was the um, Rebecca Solnit's collection of essays, um, Men Explain Things to Me. Mm-hmm. I believe the progenitor of the phrase mansplaining. 
Well, she talks about that. She never used that phrase, but she says that other people have credited her with it. And I guess it just kind of, yeah, it arose off yeah. of the back it's, of the her pointing out that it was a thing. It's miraculous the scope of powerlessness one can create in one's life with <laughs> just hardly doing anything. People take your power from you. She has an essay in there on marriage equality and talks about what marriage equality really means in terms of, you know, whether same-sex couples can get married in the same way that heterosexual couples can. And she she posits that the real issue people have with marriage equality is that they it means they need to address equality in heterosexual marriage as well and redefine it as the coming together of two equal people which is counter and runs against so much of the history and culture and politics and religion where women tend to be either the virtual or literal property of the man in the marriage. And I thought that was a really interesting take on it. I love how that digs at something fundamental about what people are scared of in their own marriages rather than what they're scared of in somebody else's marriage. Right, yeah. And one of the ways... in, at least from the point of view of the essay, undermines a certain foundational, foundational, a certain foundation of heterosexual marriage, and so reinforces what the people who are afraid that it's a slippery slope to to actual equality. Um, well, yeah, but but right, this is the the beauty of words that the uh, a slippery slope to actual equality, which unpins that topples the the notion that marriage is between a man and a woman and this is the role of a man in this and this is the role of a woman mm-hmm. because if two men can get married then how do I decide whose role it is like you say the whole point is it seems like they're equal and I think that that's actually a good let's say it's it's really useful to take people at their word so when people say I'm afraid of marriage equality because it undermines marriage Right. believe them and yeah. try to understand well, why mean? do they think it and you know and then you come up maybe with a great essay like that or something else like it yeah trusting in other people's irrationality as having a rational basis is, is a great way to understand the world mm-hmm. it's not a great way to feel good about the world <laughs> yeah but instead of what i think happens in a lot of particularly political discourse is people say to each other, no, you don't mean that. No, that's not real. That's not really what you believe. Yeah, yeah. You don't really think that. You don't really yeah, think whereas that. whereas what I love about Solnit's essays is that she does exactly what you said and she takes people at their belief. Yeah, right, yeah. Tries to, tries to understand it. Obviously, this marriage in this story is a horribly sad and distasteful kind of situation. I looked up the title, Created He Them, mm-hmm. to see where it came from, which... From the Bible. Obs. Yeah. Whenever, it's, Obs. whenever it's awkward. Uh, uh, well, from the Bible. Yeah, awkward, incantatory, however you want to describe it. And the, the quote is it's from Genesis, and it's, Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam, in the day when they were created. Now, I love that, because that, that particular quote, in that language, male and female are created and given the same name. They are Adam. And in fact, I love that, that line, and called their name Adam. There, there's almost in the, in the title that she has chosen, this picking at the idea of pronouns and identity that goes all the way back to earliest Christian and before literature, the idea that when God created humans, he might have created different shapes but in a sense gave them the same name Mm -hmm. there was ultimately no separation and it's even in 
the name of Adam, the, the meaning of that word, either in, in Hebrew or older languages, can mean just made of earth, clay, mm-hmm. not necessarily male or female. It's a name of you've come from the earth. Or I love particularly one of the etymologies I looked up from Adam, for Adam, not from Adam, uh, for Adam had its root in a word, Adam, which meant to make. Whether or not it's in the story, the fact that she has set up this link that takes you back to the idea that when God created, when the universe created people, he gave them the name that meant to make, to make yourselves. And and that's the responsibility of, I guess, who knows what Henry thinks, but from Anne's perspective, it seems like she feels compelled to keep having babies and staying in this horrible marriage and and taking responsibility for making or repopulating the earth like they've already had eight and now they're going to have another one what i found to use a word delicious about the story is that so in the same way the the quote conjoins the the two creations their name is adam this story conjoins henry and anne in powerlessness Mm. the story is not blind to Henry's powerlessness, even though he might have power. Right. And one of the scariest things is powerful people who feel powerless for whatever reason, because right. then they get to act righteous. And like in this story, Henry gets to act get with to this cruelty and vindictiveness. Unthinkingly. Unthinkingly, or they get to believe they're justified. And I love how she renders powerlessness, both in, in the language that Henry uses and in the situation. So we know Henry has to go to work. And we know that he complains to her about how he couldn't get along with anyone. There's a bit where it says, he said that he himself was very easy to get along with, but they were all against him. Uh Uh, And when he talks about the the company, he uses the, the traditional way, they'll probably fire me. It reminded me of what it, what it is to be around people that feel defeated and fatalist. Mm. And in fact, it's almost as though they can't muster up the power to use the word I. Henry almost never says I in the story. Almost every sentence either is they're doing this or when he's talking about Anne, it's, you know, you didn't cook the bacon right. You didn't strain the orange. Yeah, well, when he's talking about himself, he says Anne, right? When he's, when he's like, he's, I'm unhappy with this. He just pushes it all onto her. You haven't, you haven't cooked the bacon or done the dates. He's stuck in this too. And I think one of the, the powerful aspects of the story is being able from Anne's point of view to render both a sexist critique, both uh, a critique of traditional structures, but still being able to see the other person in the structure that might have more power, but is themselves stuck in a structure that also renders them powerless. Yeah. My pick for this week is The Last Refuge by Eduardo Goligorsky which I found in Cosmos Latinos from 2003, but was originally published in 1967 in something called Edición Minotauro. And this too is a story set in the future, set in a place where all hope is lost. We're in a future Argentina that's been tyrannized, it's been isolated from the outside world for centuries. And the story begins like a race, like a gun has gone off, because you are with this man who he's come out of work and his wife is there saying, basically, they found it. And the thing they found was this album of images, of photographs from the outside world that have been banned for these centuries. Because of course, you cannot cut yourself off from the world without 
uh, eliminating the existence of the world within the country, except for to say we are upholding the traditions of. I don't remember what it is in this story. It's always something. I think in this case, it's like Marxist ideals or or uh, materialist. Yeah. Our dignity rejects the temptation of materialism, which has enslaved the world. I mean, it's really. I mean, really, if you're gonna say shit about people, the the most effective thing to do is to first erase the people, mm-hmm. and then and then say your shit. And then you can fill the blanks with whatever you can like. You do whatever you want. We intercut with him running across the countryside with these italicized sections that are describing a man weeping and his discovery of this gleaming spaceship and he's running his hands along it and he's, he's searching for some way into the spaceship. And it's, it's not very long before, of course, you understand that these are the same people. The man running away is the man that's fondling up the spaceship. And as he's running in the, in the landscape, we're, we're seeing bits of, of posters that are showing the doublespeak, the kind of politicized language of the country. So we're getting a history in his attempt to escape. And in the italicized section, we're having glimpses of the ending that's coming. We're getting a sense that this is the man, he's searching for a way in, but maybe he's not going to find it because it gets more and more desperate as he runs across the country. And then in the italic section, as he begins to beat on this spaceship to try to get in and his hands are getting bloody. And it ends in this beautiful image of the spaceship blasting off and this man that has been running and trying to escape is vaporized <laughs> in, its, in its engine blast. So there's just this kind of snowfall of dust falling across the end of the story uh, and that's all, folks. Um, one of the things that struck me reading this story is the power that it gains by that parallel structure. So you have in the in the present tense of the story, which is him running away, that the last bit of that is when he finds the ship. But then you have the italicized section, which is the moment from when he finds the ship to the moment when he is incinerated. And because you are reading these two threads at the same time, you get this realization of at the same time that he finds the ship, it's the same moment where you know that he's been incinerated. And so instead of him finding the ship being this incredible, joyous, a moment full of full of hope and possibility, he's already dead. And so you just get this bam, bam, one, two of hope that is immediately destroyed. And you're just like, oh, and yeah. It was it was such an impressive thing to achieve purely with a parallel structure. Sure. It reminded me of this book by Benjamin Percy is called Thrill Me and these essays on writing. And one of the things he talks about is worst case scenario and modulation. The idea that when you're writing a story, imagine what's the worst possible thing that could happen and then it happens. So in this case, right, the guy is searching for escape. What's the worst that could happen? Well, the vehicle of his escape destroys him. <laughs> Check. We got that. Uh, and two, modulation, the idea of having, you know, the laugh right before the kill. You know, the moment in Serenity where Wash is like, I'm a leaf on the wind. Then he's dead. As he's running away and we're getting history, we don't get the descriptions of the images of the outside world until right before that ending where he's with the spaceship and gets incinerated. And I'm going to read a bit of those descriptions of those photographs. On Sunday, when Carlitos went to play in the park with his friends, he and Marta had often taken advantage of being alone to remove the album from its hiding place and look through it. This ritual, which their ancestors must have repeated countless times, transported them to a world of dreams and imagination. 
The photograph of the huge seawater desalination plants installed in the Sahara was next to the one of the transparent survival domes scattered across the fantastic purple landscape of Mars. Beside a picture of the Karachi skyscrapers was one that captured the intricate arabesques of the gray elastic vegetation of Venus. You know, all of those images come at the end. It gives you that modulation that right at the moment before all hope is lost, you get the images of hope. The loss is all the more meaningful in that you have glimpsed what could have been of what was. We were at my mum's at the time I was reading this story and I was looking at, she's got photos of family all around the house and in particular she's got one door that's covered with images of my extended family across many, many decades posing awkwardly or caught in the middle of kissing babies or whatever else. And it made me think about the power of the power of collecting images and how connected they make you feel to people, ideas, images or ideologies that are around you. And God, no wonder, no wonder yeah. images of the outside world are banned because I standing in front of this door and looking at my personal history, I I could feel almost like physical tendrils mm-hmm. extending from me to those people, to the conversations that I've had with them, or sometimes the conversations I've never had a chance to have. And that's what a regime doesn't want you to do. They no, want you no to have connection a, to the past. <laughs> yeah, they want you to have a stronger connection to them. Mm-hmm. than you do to anyone around you. Yeah, yeah, just like in Created He, Them. If, if you can grind down as much connection as possible between individual humans, then the state has more power. Mm. And it, it made me wonder, is it all images that are banned in this... In this um, I imagine all images thing. of the outside world that aren't in control of the, the state, which can doctor them. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I also wondered if maybe they banned, they banned the idea of taking photos at all right because right, they don't yeah. want families to yeah. build that kind of internal yeah, cohesiveness exactly yeah well i mean it would be an excellent idea for a dictator well that was <laughs> it started me thinking i'm like yeah. well if i was going to run my dictatorship right. uh, that would be no cameras no cameras for sure no phones except phones which only accept calls from the government yeah it would be like that um Doctor Facebook. Who episode, oh, <laughs> Doctor what? Who episode where they've yeah. all got those little Bluetooth communicators yeah. in their ears, and they right. will stop in the street to listen to the joke at the at the same time. You know what movie this reminded me of? Rival. Arrival? No, no. It, it reminded me of Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, I haven't seen that. In the introduction to this story, they talked about a lot of the writers writing in Argentina during fifties, sixties, 70s incorporated in their stories a lot of questions of the reality of of oppression, of political horror. And one thing I loved in this story was that those images as described and the italicized bits of the spaceship called to mind to me this golden age of SF. Those descriptions sound like they have come from science fiction. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're italicized helped to set them apart. And so you read them as though they're a different reality. And it it helps to reinforce this sense that you, this wonder and this imagination don't exist for this person. Remind me of how in, in Pan's Labyrinth, it's, it's a similar kind of dynamic because it's a little girl and she's, she's growing up, you know, she's going through the, the standard adolescent transformation where you're visited by a fawn who lives in a labyrinth and is, is inducting you to the dark arts of being human. Right, I mean, mine just was blood. 
that was that was my well i mean you know in in blood is is history and monsters and and yeah. love and and babies so and 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 pan's labyrinth like this story sets that fantastical that mm-hmm. that fairy tale genre that genre of escapism perhaps against the spanish civil war and so you have the this reality of political oppression against the reality of, of fantasy and what makes both stories work is the the blood to which you refer is in both so in this case right ultimately those images of the golden age of sf of wonder get literally bloodied by his hands they mm-hmm. that sense of escape and, and beauty is is rendered horrible both in his own attempt to get in and in that loss, which literally obliterates him. (laughs) In thinking about the two threads of the story, the quote, the opening of Romeo and Juliet came to mind. Two households, both alike in dignity. Um, And as you're reading the story at first, it seems like the italicized thread, the thread about the spaceship, has this kind of noble dignity about about that yeah as his desperation increases it it descends into just as horrific if not more horrific than the other thread and then i went back to thinking about romeo and juliet and that idea of them being alike in dignity and i was like oh suddenly after all this time it occurred to me that being <laughs> yeah. alike in dignity does not mean that they <laughs> doesn't mean that they um are dignified that means no. they are both equally crass and awful houses well yeah or in the jane austen sense of pride and prejudice that having a a certain kind of dignity cuts you off from connecting with other people right it turns to monstrousness yeah and the the personal thing for me with this story is i discovered it in the days after trump was elected and when i I was reading the story of this nationalist country that decided well we're just going to cut ourselves off from the Mm -hmm. world and that resonated with me i mean that's sad but what killed me what made the story special what made the story painful was this rendering of oh of course just like with personal relationships if you decide i'm going to cut myself off from you the other person will eventually decide okay fuck it i'll cut myself off from you as well and and then you're lost. If you want to be isolationist, it is unlikely people will continue to reach out to you. Mm-hmm. And so you will create a world where nobody wants to have anything to do with you. And good for you. you you've done your job. And so that spaceship at the end that won't let him in, it felt like both the U.S. closing itself off, closing its borders off to refugees or immigrants, but it also felt like the, that sense of being in the U.S. and becoming more and more closed off from the rest of the world and the rest of the world turning its back on you. And that I had this, this tremor of, of horror of, of imagining how that would feel for the world to leave you behind, for the U.S. to regress and regress. And, mm-hmm. and somehow everybody else is going out to space and living it up and having a good time. And we're living in a country where we're being told, no, this is right. This is good. We're yeah. happy. You're happy. I'm happy. We're all happy. I mean, that's, we're, we're great again. Anyway, and I also took from it, of course, me, the, the dumb hope. I was thinking of Ian Forster's quote, only connect and how if people cut themselves off from you, yeah, there's, there may be a time where you should cut yourself off from them, but maybe not. Maybe you just leave yourself open um, because uh, mm-hmm. un, unlike what Sartre said, hope is other people.
Thanks for listening, readers. Um, we have probably not said all the things about these stories. Nor have we talked about all the stories that exist in the world, past, present, or future. So if you want to get in touch and let us know your opinions or recommend us stories to discuss on future episodes, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Storylogical. That's story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. And you can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He is at Kuvols. You can follow and like us on Facebook. We are at facebook.com slash storyological. That's storyological spelled like it was five seconds ago. And if you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you have, you can look us up on iTunes and leave us a rating and a comment. And we love it when you do that. And for show notes, gifts of an inappropriate or appropriate nature, links to past episodes and interviews with writers, and a chance to subscribe to this podcast, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storyological.com. Thanks for listening, readers. Happy reading. <laughs> there are paragraphs in the graveyard book, Neil Gaiman's The Graveyard Book, which are hundreds of words long strung together with a barrage of semicolons it's beautiful i should find find one to link to later some other sentences with semicolons if it were too soft he didn't if it were too soft yeah never mind just go ahead (laughs) i just wanted to fill in time but it looks like you're ready (laughs) yeah nailed it (laughs) clearly